G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, worker stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Employee or contractor? That is the question we ask today, and it is important to get a historical perspective first. The Howard era of work choices was about removing the gains workers had made over a century that gave workers more control over wages and conditions, reducing the industrial landscape to a series of individual contracts. The promotional spin was around individuals carving their own rates of pay and conditions in a competition with their fellow workers, characterising tradies and truck drivers as the great frontiersmen of the industrial landscape, running their own businesses and setting their own timetables. In this high-stake chess game, the employer class were aiming for lower wages, offsetting costs, throwing off responsibilities for conditions of work and ultimately disintegration of collective bargaining power of workers. But that was the fine print, which those not used to dealing with contract law might be expected not to read. The desire of employers and their government representatives to achieve this return to the master-servant arrangement between workers and their employers is a standing desire, and early this February the High Court entered the field with two decisions which sent shockwaves across the landscape of industrial law. I spoke with Professor Anthony Forsyth, Head of Department, Law at the Graduate School of Business and Law at RMIT's university about the two decisions, what they entailed, what they mean for workers and what workers need to do to protect themselves in this continuing war of attrition against wages and conditions in the Australian industrial landscape. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. There's been a number of cases around um, uh, the concept of sham contracting being um, not fit for purpose or contracts not fit for purpose for long-term employees. Uh, but last week, the High Court did a, uh, uh, did a unanimous decision around one of these kind of cases uh, that have set some shockwaves um, around industrial law. Do you want to give my listeners some understanding of what that case was about? Yeah, well, there were two cases actually last week. Um, the first one uh, was a case relating to a couple of truck drivers. Um, this is the Jamsec case. So in that case, the truck drivers were originally employees. Um, going back to the 1980s, they'd been engaged. 
they were told in the mid-1980s that they had to buy their trucks and enter contracts to carry the goods for the company if they wanted to keep working. So they both agreed to do that and set up partnerships with their wives and those partnerships entered into written contracts with the company. And that's how they worked for, for the next 30 or more years um, with the money that they earned um, used to meet the partnership costs of running the vehicles and other aspects of the businesses. And then the partnership income was split between the spouses for income tax purposes. And those contracts ended in 2017. But then once that happened, the drivers both claimed for entitlements on the basis that they hadn't really been contractors through the partnerships all along, but that they'd been employees and that therefore they were entitled to um, minimum wages and conditions under the Fair Work Act, under superannuation legislation and under New South Wales long service leave legislation. What the High Court decided in that case um, and this is where there is a significant shift from previous approaches to working out who is an employee and covered by labour law protections and who is a contractor. Um, the, the High Court has now said that to work that out, um, you look at the relationship between the parties by reference to the written agreement that they entered into. In this case, the agreement between those partnerships and the company that engaged the drivers. So in the past, courts have looked at the substance and the reality of the work relationship, but the High Court is now saying that's not really an orthodox contractual analysis. It doesn't matter that the drivers devoted their working lives to this company and had limited opportunity to work for others. And it also doesn't matter that there was any uh, disparity of bargaining power between the companies and the drivers and the fact that they effectively imposed this contract of partnership arrangement on them. So... This is quite a significant shift, and we can talk about its implications and how it might play out in some other cases, particularly in the gig economy. And the other case, are you talking about the uh, the worker who was the con construction worker? Yeah, that's right. So this is a case brought by the CFMEU, the, the construction union, um, against a company called Personnel Contracting. So the worker here was a young British backpacker called McCourt, uh, he was here in Australia on a working holiday visa. He'd been engaged by Construct, which is a labour hire company, to work as a labourer on a Perth building site run by um, what we call the host company in a labour hire arrangement, which is a company called Hanson. McCourt entered into a services agreement with Construct that called him a self-employed contractor. And he worked on several Hanson building company projects in Perth in 2016-17 and then the, the work ended or well, he, he decided not to continue. But then he brought a claim through the CFMEU for entitlements under the building and construction award. So whereas Construct, the labour hire company that sent him to work on the Hanson building sites, was calling him an independent contractor, which would mean that the building award and other employee entitlements don't apply, he was trying to argue that he was really an employee of, of Construct, not an independent contractor. And in a decision the same day as the one I was just talking about, JAMSEC, the High Court said that the multi-factor test that we've traditionally used since at least the mid-1980s to distinguish an employee from a contractor, looking at the totality of that relationship, the High Court now says that is an imprecise and uncertain approach that it's not required by previous case law. And 
just as it said in the Jamset case, the other one, um, if the terms of the party's relationship are committed to a written contract, which isn't challenged as a sham, then those written terms are decisive. So again, the High Court is saying, you know, let's let's take the McCourt case. It doesn't matter that he was subjected to quite a considerable degree of control. In this case, they, they actually did decide that McCourt was an employee based on looking at the written terms. They said that those terms allowed Construct to set his rate of pay. They could terminate the arrangement and importantly, that it exercised quite a bit of control over how he would work on the building site. So in this case, the High Court said he was an employee, but under its stricter test for how we distinguish this, that may not play out the same way in a whole lot of other cases. Mm. He, he was paid considerably less uh, than other people doing exactly the same work as well. Yeah, that wasn't... Um, that wasn't important. Drawn out. It wasn't gone to in detail in the reasoning of the High Court judges in their different judgments in the personnel contracting case, but we would have to think that being a contractor or, or being engaged ostensibly as a contractor, one of the purposes of that would be to treat him as if he was, you know, more like an independent um, small business person, and therefore whatever award rates might have otherwise been applicable wouldn't apply to him. So chances are he was earning considerably less, and that's why the CFMEU brought the claim to say, well, no, he should have been um, covered by award entitlements. So what we're left with, if we look at it at all, is as the Australian Industry Group have said, really it just means that it depends on how the lawyer brings up the contract. Uh, if you do a, a cast-iron contract when you employ, well, is the word employ even a, a word now? Under these sort of when you when you engage people, yeah. when you engage people, I think, yeah, that's right. I, I think it I think it is definitely handing employers or businesses even more power than they already had to determine work conditions. To as you said, the Australian Industry Group are saying they'd probably be very happy about these decisions because what what the High Court is saying is we're only going to look at the terms of the written contract. So employers supported by their um, resources, including lawyers who specialise in framing these contracts, are now able to set the terms and conditions of these work arrangements and craft them so that they are independent contractor relationships and the opportunity for that to be challenged or re-read by a court taking into account how the work relationship has actually operated let's say over you know five or ten years however long somebody works for a business the high court saying we're not interested in how it operated in practice we're only interested in the contractual terms so yes employers now have much more capacity to shape the terms of that relationship from the beginning. They're not going to take into account the social reality of the work relationship, which I thought was a nice phrase, and uh, they've explicitly rejected an unequal power relationship between workers and employers as a relevant factor. That's the astonishing part of this, is the deliberate knocking down of any suggestion that the court should be interested in unequal bargaining power. I mean, we teach labour law students in the first class, <laughs> you know, that all of our 
employment regulations developed, you know, over the last hundred years or more have at their core an assumption of inequality of bargaining power when an individual worker sits down to negotiate a contract or terms of engagement with a business. The High Court is saying, well, not not in this area, not in relation to how contracts are formed. We're only interested in what the written terms say, the formal aspects of the arrangement. We're not going to inquire into, you know, let's say in the in the Jamset case, we're not going to inquire into the fact that they were working along happily as employees for a few years and then the company said, well, no, if you want to continue, you've got to be a contractor through a partnership. Now, look, the outcome in that particular case, I don't find terribly troubling in the sense that it's not uncommon for people who have worked for a long period of time as contractors and had the benefit of partnership arrangements for income splitting that that has more of a tenor of a of a genuine independent contractor arrangement, but it's the reasoning the court adopted to get to that conclusion that I think has astounding implications for other cases in future. You're in particular pointing out that it strengthens the case for Deliveroo and Uber organisations like that to argue that their engaged people are not employees; their drivers aren't employees. Yeah, that was going to be my my main example that we should consider Um, because in the gig economy, what we've got going on is a racket where these sort of tech disruptors, self-described from when they emerged about a decade ago, have basically turned traditional assumptions about employment regulation upside down. So the normal starting position used to be you're an employee if you provide your labour unless you're running a genuine business of your own. What they've done is to say to anybody working through an app, um, whether it's Uber or Deliveroo or Airtasker, or even now in the care industry, some of those platforms, it's spreading. They say to these workers, there's no negotiation. It's here is an online platform, tick these boxes to accept our terms if you want to do the work and earn money through us. And that all includes that you are a contractor. So your starting position is you are a contractor. It's then been up to individual workers like some food delivery riders, again, with the help of unions like the TWU, transport workers, to challenge that in the courts. These decisions really close down the opportunity to challenge those arrangements in the courts. What it means is that it, it's outside minimum wage laws and employment regulations. It cuts out rights to um, conditions, including superannuation and annual leave. Uh, and also the worker incurs all training and uh, costs like maintenance of, of vehicles and uh, things like that. Absolutely. If you say to a, a food delivery rider through an app, you're a contractor. Um, so, you know, you might be a 21-year-old university student riding around delivering food for Deliveroo or whoever. You're not running an independent business. You're, you're making a bit of money. We would normally call that casual employment. But the platforms, and this is a global phenomenon, they've just ousted the minimum wage, the right to challenge deactivation from the platform, which is very common, um, through unfair dismissal the right to bargain collectively, the right to strike, obviously. 
So the, the platforms already had workers over a barrel. These decisions just reinforce that because there have been some cases where food delivery and other platform workers and unions have successfully challenged the imposition that they're a contractor, but these decisions really narrow that possibility. Legislative reform is really the only solution to this issue. How do we make this happen, right? And the first step is to take action. We have to build a movement where people understand that this is an issue because not everyone's talking about it, right? You look at Seven News, Nine News, no one mentions this stuff and there's a reason for that and we need to put it on the front line so that people actually know about it. And we do that by raising awareness, by sharing stories like Jay, like myself and like some people maybe in this room as well. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. On today's Stick Together program, we're talking to Professor Anthony Forsyth. He's the uh, Department Head of Law at RMIT's Graduate School of Business and Law. And we're talking about the two recent decisions in the High Court that impinge on our understanding of who is an employee and who is a contractor in the Australian industrial landscape and why this is important for you as a worker and what it could mean for Australian society in general. Using the common law, which is a very expensive process and probably not fit for purpose when it comes to industrial law, uh, where does it place industrial law? What, what does it do? We just you know gather it up and and throw it out the window? I think we have marched back into the master and servant territory of the the English common law that we inherited here in Australia, where you know employers just had so much control over the work life of their workers. I think it's it's a regressive approach from the High Court and I don't think it means we give up on industrial law because there is still so much, we're talking here mostly about the regulation of the individual work relationship. There's a, you know, a massive uh, part of industrial law which is about collective bargaining and unions and the right to strike. But all of that is in dire need of attention as well. So, so my view is that we already needed a legislative solution to the gig economy problem. We need it even more now in light of these high court decisions and um, we won't get it unless there's a change of government federally. The next thing is it occurs to me that on a sort of a vaguely positive level, it, in, it should improve the position of unions because individual workers making um, agreement with um, large organisations uh, or even, you know, people working in cafes and stuff like that, they're not going to be able to uh, broker uh, reasonable deals without being in a collective, effectively. So union membership would really needs to improve. Well, this, these two decisions, on top of everything else that's happened, including the effects of the pandemic on workers, these are all fabulous marketing opportunities for unions. Um, so I've just published a book looking at the future of unions and they have been quite active or, or a few of them have, like the TWU and the Young Workers Centre at 
trades hall in Victoria. And Rafu. Have been active. Oh, and Rafu. I was thinking mainly around the gig economy, but Rafu, obviously, as a as an alternative um, for um, shop assistants and, and fast food workers and retail. That's right. Um, so, yes, definitely in answer to your question, unions need to take this opportunity to step in and campaign and advocate um, for gig workers, but also for a much broader group of workers who are going to be impacted by these high court decisions. While we wait for a possible legislative solution to this, it's at the point of formation of contracts that unions are going to have a pivotal role to play. I mean, how they get in there and intervene and interrupt what I was describing earlier about gig platforms, you know, making you tick boxes before you get access to that work. I don't have an answer to that, but that's the area where unions need to be in there educating workers about, you know, don't accept work on that basis. Help workers to push back against the imposition of those terms. Another thing that's going on at the moment, just briefly, is that the Victorian government ran an inquiry into on-demand work and has now got some best practice standards about how platforms should operate out for consultation. So there is an opportunity, and I'll hopefully be saying this to the Victorian government, you know, through your best practice standards, create an opportunity for unions to help educate workers about why accepting work on these terms is not a good outcome for them. It's going to be uh, pretty terrible for the Australian society for these to go back 100 years into the master-servant relationship. Well, I think generally we would like to think of the development of our approach to work regulation as evolving and improving over time. You know, that happened in Australia through conciliation and arbitration and awards for much of the past century up until the Howard era. And really since then, we've seen a progressive eating away of work rights. This is just the latest chapter of that unfortunate decline in the scope of regulation and the protection that it offers to workers. But yes, that obviously has massive impacts on the broader society. Um, What legislative changes do you think are necessary? Well, I think in response to the two High Court decisions, we need legislative direction around what is the test for distinguishing an employee from an independent contractor. So until these decisions last week, for at least 30 or 40 years, courts looked at the totality of the relationship. You know, was there control over what the worker did, who paid them, or did they invoice for the work? Did they provide their own tools and equipment? There's a a list of 10 or 12 matters that you would consider under that test. That's been sidelined. So, you know, legislation to write that back into how courts should judge this important distinction. Um, But then if we move on specifically to the gig economy context, you need another step in the reform, and that is to redefine employment. You know, employment is the gateway to whether you're covered by an award, whether you get the minimum wage, whether you can challenge unfair dismissal. So the platforms have bypassed all of that by calling everyone a contractor. We need to redefine the concept of employee in the Fair Work Act and in super legislation across the board, you're an employee and entitled to those rights unless you are genuinely providing labour as a business of your own, an independent entrepreneurial business. 
a, a kid riding around delivering food is not an independent business. Even if they work for a few different platforms, lots of casuals work for different employers. Should be no different in the gig economy. Uh, just to finish up, I, I just my particular pet hate really is uh, the uh, chief executive of the Australian Industry Group, uh, Ines Wilcox, who always pops up like you know whenever something like this needs to be discussed. He's quoted as saying, we'll increase business certainty and, and investment and will consequently be good for jobs. The idea of uh, reducing pay and, um, and an attack on minimum wages has already been proven not to be a reason for why there are more jobs or that jobs are improved. I mean, someone was given a Nobel Prize because they proved that this was not the case. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Look... I mean, you you could you, you'd lose count of the number of times Innes and other employer representatives um, say the same thing. You know, getting rid of any employment regulation or anything that interferes with the ability of management to determine what happens in the workplace is good for investment. Is good for jobs. Well, jobs on whose terms? You know, it's not good for workers that businesses carte blanche can with a freer hand now, thanks to the High Court, determine and set the work conditions, create it such that everybody's a contractor and therefore misses out on employment rights. And courts in future, until this is overturned through legislation, can't have regard to inequality of bargaining power, you know, the founding notion of most of our employment regulation. It's just not on. That's it for Stick Together this week. The book Anthony was talking about is called The Future of Unions and Workers' Representation. It charts the path to revitalisation for trade unions in Australia, the USA, the UK and Italy. It examines the examples of innovation and digital campaigning that are enabling unions to build new forms of worker power and overcome decades of declining membership wrought by neoliberalism, globalisation and hostility from employers and the state. It is published by Hart Publishing. That's H-A-R-T Publishing. And as I said, that's it for Stick Together this week. You can catch up with the show at 3cr.org.au or where you get your favourite podcasts. You can contact us at sticktogether at 3cr.org.au. I'm Annie McLaughlin. Join the Stick Together team next week for more workers' news. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. Stay safe and stick together. It's empty in the valley of your heart The sun, it rises slowly as you walk Away from all the fears and all the faults you've left behind The harvest left no food for you to eat You cannibal, you meat-eater, you see But I've seen the same, I know the shame in your defeat And I'll find strength in pain And I will change my ways I'll know my name as it's called again
fill my time You take what is yours and I'll take mine Now let me at the truth which will refresh my broken mind So tie me to a post and block my ears I can see where those orphans through my tears And know my call despite my faults and despite my growing fears But I of your cave walking on your hands and see the world hanging upside down you can understand dependence when you know the maker's land so make your sirens call and say 